Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, tell us about today's case. So we're going to discuss a deadly shooting at a busy shipping facility today. And at first glance, our discussion might seem like any one of a number of workplace violence situations. But perhaps by the end of our discussion, I'm really hoping to add just a bit of nuance to the way we all think about uh, what can happen when we go to the office. Now, in past episodes that we've recorded, there have been names that I've known. So we've done Sandy Hook, Columbine, the Aurora Theater shooting. This one is a complete unknown to me. But do you think that's because it's in a workplace versus one of the horrific places like a school or even in a place where we have recreational activities like museums and the theatre? Yeah, I I agree. News is what people want to watch and hear. And people want to hear about what happens in places where people are more vulnerable. And there's actually a lot of business shootings. And I know they all seem random, but really crime is categorized in a number of buckets all the time. And so a person who beats their spouse to death is both a domestic abuser and a murderer. And a person who commits a crime in a place of employment may be involved both in workplace violence and in the actual crime, whatever that category might be. And in our case, it it happens to be mass murder. I remember reading in your book, business shootings are actually the higher percentage of locations for mass shootings. Have I remembered that correctly? You're right. You're absolutely right. And actually, that was a surprising thing. When I worked for the FBI, when I led the team working in, on active shooters, we found that fully half of all of these types of incidents occurred at places of business, even though what you hear in the news is mostly schools or, like you said, places of recreation. Let's get to it. What can you tell us about this incident? So this is a recent incident, which is another reason why you may not recall it. On April 15th of 2021, a 19-year-old man carrying two semi-automatic rifles began shooting outside of a FedEx ground facility, and then he entered the business. He continued to shoot people for about four minutes before turning the weapon on himself and killing himself. So in all, he killed eight people and he shot another five. A couple of other people also suffered injuries. Wow. 19. It's one of our younger shooters again, isn't it? Why did he choose this particular target? You mentioned in the opening that he was an employee, but was he specifically targeting workmates or a boss? The answer to those questions are really exactly why I chose this case. So let me back up a little bit and let me place some other relevant facts on the whiteboard here. This shooting occurred at a shipping facility. I'm sure you've heard the name FedEx. They were once called Federal Express. They have several subsidiaries, uh, one that specializes in transporting goods by tractor trailer, which is called FedEx Ground. Yeah, I do know of FedEx, but I think this might be another one of our cross-the-pond lost-in-translation searches because a tractor and a trailer means something a little bit different over here. 
can't imagine farming trailer is the most efficient way that you've found in the US to transport things across the country. Seems like it's one step above a horse and cart. So what, what are you talking about? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, this does not generally involve horses. No, what I'm talking about are semi cabs, these big cabs that behind them pull a long container box. So, Ooh, gotcha. Okay. Let's go back to FedEx. Can you paint me a picture of the actual location? Sure. The shooting occurred at this company in Indianapolis. It's the company's second largest building that houses about 4,000 employees. But this happened to occur at a shift change at about 11 p.m. And there were really only about 100 people working at the time. So it could have been a lot worse then. Indeed. And let me tell you, here's what all the news reported in the days and the hours and the weeks afterwards. The shooter, a one-time employee, drove into the parking lot and began shooting pretty much as soon as he exited his car and no one recalls anything specific. And someone reported hearing him yell that nobody understood what he said, but they knew he was carrying two AR-15 style weapons that he had legally purchased the year before. And as I said, he killed four people inside the building and four people outside the building before he killed himself. Okay. I know you quite well now, and I know that we're not here to hear (laughs) what the newspapers reported because often it's not actually accurate. We're here for the inside baseball, so enlighten us. Inside baseball? Listen to you. I'm getting all American on it. I love the idiom. We're going to turn you into American yet. So indeed, you're right. And I will say only a couple of papers covered this, but you're right. A lot of times the news is incomplete. It's not a criticism of the news. It's a recognition that our audience should realize that what they read and hear is what uh, the news is able to construct based on what people tell them and what's reported. And, And oftentimes it is inaccurate and we know that. So three months after the shooting, the official report came out with a whole additional set of facts and some contradictory facts. So we learned that the suspect arrived and in fact got out of his car, went up and spoke to security, which is just inside the employee entrance, about the status of his employment. He had worked there for a couple of months the prior year. And of course, he couldn't get in the building. When he was turned away, he told the security officer he was going to go back to the car to get his ID so he could come back in the building. He sat in the car for a few minutes. When he eventually emerged from the car, he began shooting and he immediately hit someone who was walking out of the building who had walked Mm. into the parking lot. Oh, my God. He entered the building. He shot at employees in a locker room. Security features in the building prevented him from going any further into the building. Then he left the building. And mind you, this was very quick. He shot a couple more people in the parking lot. Some person in the parking lot at some point retrieved a weapon and fired a single round at him, which didn't hit anybody or anything. And that's not a big surprise. He re-entered the building at that point, back into the locker room and killed himself. Gosh, there's a lot in there to unpack. So he wasn't actually even an employee at that time, was he? He wasn't an employee. He worked there before. I'm just wondering why he targeted the FedEx. Was it a grievance with that particular employer? Sarah, Sarah, you're getting ahead of yourself. Uh, I can't help it. I need to know everything now. I know. I I want to talk about the shooter, but I just want to talk about the incident first because the connection's not there. So that's my first thought really is don't connect that idea that, oh, he's an employee and therefore he targeted his employer. There's definitely some of that, but that connection is not as sound as it may seem. Interesting. Okay. More familiarity, but we'll get to that. And the other thing that I was going to pull out of that last segment was good guy with a gun. Yeah. It's and one of the first times that we've talked about that this season. 
Yes. And I'm always yeah. really interested to know, did that have any positive impact on the killer then going in and finishing the shooting? So I did say certainly the first time this season, we've talked about it. And I do have on the sked for next season, a plan to talk about guns and good guys with guns. I think that's an important discussion to have too. So we'll, that's season two. So stay tuned, as they say. But this is this shooting isn't that old. We don't have the police reports out yet, so I can't really give you the details. But he took a single shot at the individual. We don't know how far away he was, where he went, and he climbed in his car and he drove away. So it wasn't a person who was confronting the shooter. I don't know how fo- far away or close he was, and it is very difficult for trained law enforcement to hit a target that's 25 feet away or 30 feet away. It's not a surprise that he didn't hit the person, but it may have been something that prompted the shooter to go back inside. But I'm speculating on that. Let's talk about who he targeted because oftentimes in these shootings, like we've seen Virginia Tech or Sandy Hook, the killer goes into these situations and he's shooting indiscriminately. Was he picking out targets at this location or was it indiscriminate? In this case, I think that the witnesses have indicated it was indiscriminate. I think that the pattern that he moved in probably indicates that it was indiscriminate. For example, the first person that he shot apparently was the first guy who left the building. But it's a good question for sure, looking from the outside. Four of the eight people who were killed were from the Sikh community, for instance. That makes people say, what was that all about? In this case, no evidence surfaced to show any bias on the shooter's part that was the motivation for the shooting. But an FBI will say this, an FBI analyst showed a fraction of his digital history showed that he had viewed some World War II Nazi-type propaganda, but that it was a fraction of his internet history. And they found it inconsistent with somebody who was focusing on an ideology or hate. And I think about that and I think, what would your digital history look like, Sarah? Since starting this podcast, it would be properly horrific, I think. The fact that four of the eight victims are from the Sikh community was more a reflection of maybe the city's demographics than a deliberate targeted hate crime. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it appears, yes. Many people who worked at this facility were from that community. The Sikh community numbers about 8,000, I think, in Indianapolis alone, uh, several thousand in the state. So. The news certainly shocked that community and members of the coalition. This shooting occurred overnight. Members of the Sikh coalition, which is really the largest kind of civil rights organization, complained, uh, made a public statement about they weren't getting enough details fast enough. And that was what their concern was. And for a community that's really known to focus in current day on humility and humanity, it's, it's hard to imagine they would even make a public statement. So obviously they were frustrated. The chairman of uh, the the Sikh's political action committee released this statement at the time. He said, situations like these are becoming a part of everyday life as an American. We are the most powerful nation on the face of the earth and have been founded on liberty and justice for all people. The issue of mass shootings has affected people from all walks of life, regardless of someone's age, race, or social status. Whether these shootings are targeted, such as the mass shootings that took place in Atlanta against the Asian community, or random acts of hate, such as this horrible crime, They all have one similarity. They are becoming commonplace within our community that prides itself in tolerance and diversity. Kind of spoke for all of us, didn't he? And uh, I think well put, Gursinder Singh Kasala is the chairman of the Sikh Political Action Committee who released that statement. And and there were lots of statements, but I think it's well spoken for the frustration that people feel as we try to solve these challenges. And, you know, the reason I I wrote Stop the Killing is I advocate for self-reliance. And I think that Politics and policies only go so far, and and we need to do our part to stop the killing, and that is my mantra. 
24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So did the FBI ever discover this killer's why? They did a pretty good forensics job on the digital footprint for this individual. They also interviewed uh, a number of people, 120 people, I think. And they do that whether it's a federal crime or if it's a local crime, the FBI is also a designed agency to provide tremendous support to the state and local departments of which there are 18,000 in the country. So if one of those agencies says, we need your help, we want you to look at this guy's background, we have the forensic abilities in the lab and we'll do that. They have some why thoughts, but not directly from him. So more to come on that. Okay. So what struck you, Catherine, about this particular incident that you think is the most significant piece of information that you want the public to know? I think shocking. I think there's two, even though you said one, you keep saying one, but I say, I think there's again two, because one is about the employees themselves and one has to do with the building security. I don't know why I bother giving you one as an option anymore. I should just <laughs> always know it's going to be two. <laughs> so first, I try really hard to think of just one. <laughs> well, I know because like, I know you're going to ask me that question. <laughs> we're getting double the value. So first, what about the employees then? Yeah, I think that's all of us, right? We're all the employees who are working in the office buildings and, and going to our job at the library every day. So the shooting starts in a parking lot. They really have no notice. And it could happen to any of us as we climb from our cars or walk from the bus stop 
to go to work. I can't, and I don't want to speak to a particular victim here, but I ask you, do you know how you would react? Here's my first and primary thing for all of us in the world. Look up from your phone uh, while you walk. I, cr- I realized the other day I was reading a text message while I crossed the street. I'm like, hello, abide by your own theories. Actually yeah. see the people around you. And, and actually, as a law enforcement officer, that's part of our training. You can size somebody up by looking at them and, and meeting their eyes. And they, if they're looking for a victim, they're looking for somebody who's not paying attention. You have to see what might be coming in your path. So when it comes to going in and out of work, look up. So that's first, the employee. Okay. So let's talk about the building security, because I think earlier you mentioned that there were some security sort of fire breaks that were already built in to the building itself. What did they have that worked for them? And what did they need to do after the incident to make further changes? Well, the company did have physical security and a lot of places that we've talked about already didn't have this type of security. But in this case, there were good things that worked to stop to deter the shooter. The shooter approached and there were locks and turnstiles for the employees to go through. There were two unarmed security officers that were behind a plexiglass window. So there was a visual deterrence, which we've seen before, where somebody planning something nefarious and they see security and it deters them. We've seen that before in the security world. So the shooter approached and then returned to the parking lot when he couldn't advance any further. And then the shooter starts outside. So that's a corporate challenge, right? What do you mean by corporate challenge? Lots of companies, churches, schools, libraries, they develop security plans, but really they develop security plans that really are only inside their building walls. And I see that all the time because I do work in corporate security as a consultant. When I look at their plans and policies and procedures, they all, even their training, it always often starts uh, from the doorway of the building. It's really a missed opportunity to move security further away. You know, think about those companies that they've developed some sort of security guard system or a fenced in place where the cars can come into or employees can, from the street side, have to show their badge before they walk through the grounds. And that prevents somebody from entering the property, not the building, but it prevents them from entering the property. And we've seen situations um, in Europe is a great example of situations where there may be a disaster at the checkpoint, but the disaster doesn't happen inside the building where there were more people. And in that case, I'm thinking of some bombings. So that's the value of having that exterior checkpoint. It doesn't eliminate the risk completely, but it might reduce the loss of life. That costs money. costs money to do that. Absolutely. So in this case, how effective were the unarmed security officers? Unarmed security, there is some value uh, absolutely to it. And, And I think in some places I know I'm aware of from the work I do, they're taking armed security away. So the security is there, but they're removing their weapons. So those two levels, right? So their uniforms and their watchful eyes really are there to deter troublemakers, anticipate problems. And that definitely does work. But the other purpose, I think, is solely for what we call being a good witness in law enforcement. They're trained to do something if they can, but they're also trained to be good observers. If you remember the 911 calls from the Aurora Theater and the civilians who are calling in, they can hardly articulate what they're seeing because it's such a horrific situation. So they may become a potential victim themselves, but they're probably going to be a pretty good witness because they're trained in security matters. So once the killer's gone inside the building, was there any way for the employees inside to run or hide? Yeah, I think this is the good and the bad of it. In this case, the shooter entered through an employee entrance. There's a locker room there where employees lock up their phones and can leave their personal belongings. And uh, that room didn't have an exit. 
one of the employees, she said she watched the shooter go through that door and she knew who the shooter was going to confront would have no way to escape. That's bad. When something happens like this, companies do need to reevaluate uh, the situation and they can do better. The good part is the um, construction of the building and the security that was there prevented the shooter from going into the building. The bad part is it really put the people in the locker room in a vulnerable position. So I'm sure that the uh, company did an evaluation afterwards. I tell you as a security consultant that the biggest challenge that most companies face is uh, putting security in the cost center column. A lot of companies spend as little as they must on security because it doesn't bring any direct income. And they're trying to explain to their owners or their board members why they're spending money on security for something that might happen, but often generally doesn't. But when tragedy happens, it's clear the cost is astronomical. This particular facility, the second largest facility for FedEx Ground, was shut down. Many employees left. Many employees were afraid to come to work. They had to hire new people. They had to reopen the facility at some point. So in the long run, a very expensive situation for FedEx Ground, just looking at the numbers. Again, in this situation, it's all over. And I think you said it was like four minutes. So I'm assuming that the police, they didn't even have a chance to get there. You know, actually, police oftentimes can get to a place pretty quickly, depending on where the shooting is occurring. But four minutes, pretty fast. It was the middle of the night. Law enforcement shifts are smaller often. Uh, They may have been in their own shift chain situation. So yeah, it was very quick and police came, but it was over. And this was a pretty big facility. There was potentially 4,000 employees. At this time of night, there was only 100. Is there a reason that the killer stopped when he did instead of looking for more targets? I think that Given the circumstances, and again, I'm speculating, but just based on history of other shootings, this shooter was young. He had shot outside. He had shot inside. He couldn't get into the building any further, which was clearly his intent. So the one thing that remained in his plan was to die. And so he committed suicide. So I think he wasn't looking for more targets. There were people in the building who were unaware that the shooting had even occurred because it just took a few minutes. So he's gone. And we really don't know exactly why he did go back inside and kill himself, but why he didn't kill other people or confront other people. I think it's important to remember that a lot of times we don't have the why because 45% of the time, these types of targeted violence shooters commit suicide. Here's a question for you. Who do you think had the most terrifying night if this happened at 11 o'clock at night? In my mind straight away, I'm thinking that woman in the locker room, but I'm guessing that there's a lot of families at home that are hearing about it or people not coming home from that shift that night. Exactly. You're right. That's where I would put my quarters on the table for the bet is the, the families. That One of the unexpected problems they had that was exacerbated is in a disaster situation, the family is left waiting and hanging on. In this case, The company had a policy, which is not unusual, that no cell phones were allowed uh, within the facility. So the company prohibited workers from carrying their cell phones. So there was no way for family to reach their loved ones. And there was no way for them to call out and let them know. So it's a good idea, I think, to have some sort of plan. There's other ways to reach people. I know my poor kids were raised with an FBI agent, so they had lots of alternate methods in their pocketbook for how to communicate and who to communicate with. But here's a question for you, though. If you had to put your cell phone aside right now, do you actually know the cell phone numbers of anybody who's important to you? That's embarrassing. No, 
I don't. I'm actually like I can probably do the last three digits of my husband's phone number and that's it. And <laughs> You don't even know your husband's phone no, number? No, he'll find me if he needs to. You're, you're so right. It's one of those things that I've often thought of. I thought, oh, I must remember those numbers. But I never have put the time aside to sit down and do it. And I've made my kids do it. I've made my kids remember my phone number, but not the opposite. So that's going to be uh, top of the list to do this week? I think it's something that when we were kids, our moms and dads made us memorize our home phone number because it was one of those few identifiers nowadays. Kids are all carrying phones and they have their phone numbers tattooed on their arms practically. There are lots of places where people don't have their phones with them. And even places where you can, where you're not supposed to take it out, like the service industry, you don't want your, your barista making your coffee while they're texting. I totally get that. It's a safety issue, isn't it? If you're in a manufacturing plant, you don't want the phone falling into the conveyor belt. From a corporate standpoint, as an agent, I work counterintelligence matters and corporate espionage is also at play. That's always at risk. So then that means that employees have to make a plan and employers have to make a plan. Better corporate crisis communications plans. Be a little creative and make sure that your policies and procedures allow for arrangements so families have a phone number to call if there's an emergency. It's prearranged. You can, they can check with each other. What happens now is that as we've seen at schools, families drive to the facility and stand outside looking for people and screaming and they're distressed, right? So better to develop a phone tree. I come from a huge Irish Catholic family. Phone trees are our, our bread and butter. Every phone you call you have is. I talked to Dan and John. Can you call Chris and Beth? Back in the day when you were talking about when we were growing up, we only had one phone number to remember, not right. everybody's single phone number. And it was only like five digits. It was so much shorter. So I like the idea of a phone tree. Then I only need to focus on maybe one or two phone numbers that I know. Yeah, and it, it's a great method. That's It's so simple. I'll tell you, there was a tragic accident between two passenger trains here in the United States, not far from my office when I worked at the FBI. And, and they were regular commuter lines, and one stopped and the other one didn't. And it was a terrible uh, tragedy, as you might imagine. And we knew that we had a lot of employees that potentially could have been on that train. And I was running the administrative executive position at the Washington, D.C. field office at the time. And we had about 17,000 employees. And what we did is immediately we put word out to every manager and said, find all your employees and report back to us as soon as you find them. And then one by one, we were able to check off those employees. And, and we knew that we had every employee identified and we knew for sure none of them were on the train. Yeah, I like that. And if you're in the office listening right now, it seems like a free, easy solution that every business can implement. Go and do that stat. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greenie. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. We're going to talk about the killer. So can you give us a refresher on what we should be looking out for here? Definitely. I think that's good. And thanks for asking that because targeted violence is different than uh, the other type of opportunistic violence that we see. So targeted violence is really a planned violence. This killer had his gun in his cars. He planned ahead of time. And so that if we look closer, we can almost always find tells or signs that the violent offender tips their hand to other people. What we're looking for or behaviors, signs that warrant further examination. Sometimes a person just telegraphs it straight out through their their writings. Kids in college who write violent stories about shooting incidents. Astonishingly, that's happened. I can think of two incidents where that actual thing occurred, and they handed that report in to an instructor. They write about planning. They talk to their family or their friends, peers in particular, about how they're going to get even, spouses, They'll say, We're, I'm going to get even and someone's going to pay for this and I'm planning a big event and you know, the people are going to know my name. Those are all terrible tell signs about somebody who's planning targeted violence. So we're looking for other signs that a person also might want to commit suicide because we know many of these people commit suicide. So behaviors such as increased purchase of weapons or ammunition, a person who gives away all their possessions for seemingly no reason. Maybe somebody who stops taking care of themselves, stops grooming, or somebody who completely changes their grooming without kind of explanation. A lot of times these people are inventing themselves into the person they want to become to commit this act. So there's outward physical signs. And remember, we're not looking for a particular profile. We're looking for atypical behavior. If someone shoots target practice every Saturday, that's not a behavior of concern. It's when they suddenly start amassing weapons or ammunition or building lists. It's atypical behavior. So that's what we're looking for is if you see something, say something. This is probably, and it's weird to have any favorite part of this kind of show, but it is my favorite part of the show because it has the most impact on me. I feel like since we've been doing it, it's really started to get in my psyche that we've got some power that we can actually prevent these things. Actually, so much so that I went to the movies this weekend and I went to James Bond and I was in the theatre and we'd just finished editing the Aurora theatre episode. What were you thinking? You went to the movie right after you edited that episode? I know. I didn't make the connection at all. My eyeballs were on stalks the whole time. I sat down in the movie theatre and the first thing I did was look at the exits and then go, oh God, they're close together. Somebody's not playing that well. And then I spent the whole time looking at how many people got up in the middle of a movie and walked out and then came back. And I'm like, can I just say, go to the loo first. (laughs) It's like, come on, sort yourselves out. You know what, Sarah, in the uh, Royal Theater, the the theater was a stadium seating. And so Mm -hmm. there were actually exits behind people. 
that right. they could have gone up and out. And some people never think to look behind them. You'd be very proud of me because the first thing I did is after I clocked the two exits in the front, I looked behind me. Yay. Yay. And realized like there were it. none. That's okay. At least you knew. So what can you tell us about this particular killer, Catherine? So this killer was from Indianapolis, born in 2001. So very young to me. His father committed mm-hmm. suicide when the killer was three. He committed suicide by hanging himself. His sister did uh, some interviews and said uh, some people in the family suffered from mental health issues that whether they were diagnosed, undiagnosed or treated, I don't know. But when he was 18, his mom drove him to a local gun shop. I think the conversation is the kind that we have with our kids all the time based on the conversations that occurred afterwards with police. Hey, mom, can you take me? I just thought it'd be cool to see. And so he's 18. His mom takes him there. And then he surprises his mom by pulling out a wad of cash and buying a pump action rifle at the scene. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't buy any ammunition. And so that night, his mom gets into a fight with him. He actually strikes her. I don't know how violently, but she reported that he struck. And he tells her he doesn't want to live anymore. He doesn't want this life. He intends to point the weapon, empty weapon, at a police officer so that they will kill him. (gasps) That leakage of information. Total leakage. And and leakage about suicide Mm. and a willingness to do it publicly and violently. So the next day, she actually stays home from work. She calls the police. She's concerned that he might attempt what we would call here suicide by cop. And not an unusual circumstance, unfortunately. Sometimes people do that. They don't have the moxie to do it themselves, but they'll get the police to do it. So the police respond. They seize the shotgun. It's a pump action. So I guess I should say shotgun. Took, take him to the hospital. And he's there on a mental health hold. So he's legally there on a mental health hold, meaning that the police have taken him there and he's been ordered to stay in and have mental health care. Now, this state has a red flag law. I don't know if we've talked much about these. There's at least, uh, I think, 25 states that have these in place already. There are laws that allow for stop gaps. If the police believe that the mental health officials believe that there's somebody who has access to weapons who is having mental health challenges, the court can intervene and take a weapon from a person for a period of time. So even if you're a solid gun collector, but you're just having a very stressful problem because you're father died and it's overwhelming. If your spouse was concerned about you, the police could come and take you and your weapons to court and say, this guy is really challenged right now. We want to have the weapons taken away from him because his family's concerned. And even if the person objects, the judge under the red flag laws could prevent him uh, from getting a gun in the state for up to six months. So it's not a long-term solution. But prosecutors in this case didn't pursue this red flag law. Oh my God, you've got a law. Use the bloody red flag law. I was well, thinking you know, we're going to get there for a change. Oh, well, Actually, what happened is the family didn't want the weapon back. And so the prosecutors under this state law, they have 14 days to prove their case. The prosecutor said, I don't know how we can prove this. We don't have any other data to put in front of the judge about his dangerousness. And he said everything was okay. And he's not trying to kill anybody. And he didn't even have any ammunition. So the prosecutor didn't pursue it because he didn't ask for it. So the police arrested him. And I will tell you this, he was taken in handcuffs and he told the police, shut my computer off. I don't want anybody to see what's on my computer. And as they, of course, went upstairs, they saw that he had a screen open that had some white supremacist material. So the FBI was actually brought in too, and an FBI agent interviewed him, and they found no criminal violation. They found nothing that would allow them to do any further investigation by the FBI. But apparently no involuntarily mental health hold 
was reported to the national reporting system that we use to prohibit people from buying guns. Honestly, Catherine, I want to scream. I want to scream because how many times have we heard this? There's fire breaks there and they're just not being put in place. Yeah, you voluntarily enter the information into this national system and there are definitely big gaps in it for sure. Next season, I promise we're going to explore this whole reporting system in more detail. I promise. But with regard to the shooter, remember this occurred in April of 21. So in July of 2020, just a few months after uh, this incident where he buys this pump action shotgun and then police confiscate it, he legally purchases a semi-automatic rifle. Of course he does. Of course he does. So the next month, August, he begins to work at FedEx Ground. In September, seven months before the shooting, he purchases a second rifle. In October, he's terminated for failing to show up at work. So what do you see? Oh, I just, I'm just so frustrated because there's so much leakage for a start. And his mother, she did the right thing. That's the thing. Like she did the right thing. She reported it, but I'm just so infuriated that those checks and balances, they did actually exist, but they still weren't triggered. So the red flag law and the reporting of the involuntary mental health, both rendered completely bloody useless and meaningless in this case. And let's be honest, if he didn't have those guns, how much damage would he have been able to do in four minutes? That's absolutely the discussion, right? I think you're spot on about things that really don't have to do with this particular killer, right? Red flag laws are out there. It is a a growing process to learn how to apply them. People are afraid that the government is going to take away guns or that their livelihood or their world is going to be affected by a law enforcement or a judge making a decision that there's a temporary hold on their weapons. And that's something that I think we all have to evaluate. Is this one of the ways that that check system can help us allow the millions of legal gun owners here in the United States to have their weapons, but still catch in our net kind of the people who are a bigger concern. And the same thing applies to the national instant check system for background, NICS system, where it's designed to catch some of the people who maybe shouldn't have guns. I think both of those are worthy of future discussions Mm -hmm. because they are more nuanced ways for us to stop the killing. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case 
with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. So how did I do? What did I miss in this case? I think you were great. Um, You really saw the opportunities to prevent the shooting. And I think you were right to say uh, the mom did the right thing. I can't speak to what happened in those few months afterwards. Anybody who's raised a teenager and lived to tell about it knows uh, that it's its own challenge. But this kid clearly had a death wish and he was going to work away until he could figure out how to uh, carry it out. And in this case, as we see a lot of times with individuals, their anger is expressed outward and they take people with them. So you said that the FBI looked at his digital footprint as well. What did that show? Yeah, here's what we did learn after the investigation. So they know now he began planning the shooting nine months before it occurred, which would put that shooting planning beginning about the time he purchased his first rifle, right, in July of 2020. So Was that when that he was, was working at FedEx as well at that time? Nope, he wasn't working there at the time. When you write a piece of fiction about crimes, it's one way. But when you look at the reality of what happens, this is an individual who's trying to function day to day, right? And so he bought this gun and he started thinking about this shooting. But then the next month, he took a job at FedEx. He worked there for a couple of months, but he stopped showing up. There's really no evidence that he intentionally wanted to kill people at that office. FBI behavioral experts say no indication of that. No incident with the employer no employee problems back and forth. He worked there for such a small time. And we also know that they found that he looked at other potential sites. We also thought Mm. about uh, suicide all the time. The conclusion really was that this killer thought that he would have unrestricted access because he'd worked there before. Instead, the point of security kept him from getting into the building, probably uh, maybe a worse disaster. I don't know. I don't have the ammunition count offhand on what he was carrying with him. But federal agents absolutely believe he acted alone. And really, nobody else was aware of his plan. So why this particular location, then, if he looked at others? Was it simply because he could get in through the security? I think so. I think that's a big part of it. But even if you don't have a vendetta, and the FBI research shows that people who commit crimes tend to commit them near them. I remember arresting a bank robber who who robbed the bank two doors down. I'm like, hello. Oh, my goodness. That's ridiculous. From his house. He he robbed it twice, too. Three weeks apart. Okay. <laughs> we actually followed the footprints back to his house because it was in the wintertime. Oh my gosh. Snow. We need a podcast just on that guy, clearly. Okay. No, not, not the sharpest tack in the box. <laughs> so FBI research does show that killers pl- tend to return to places that they're more familiar with. And that's what we think here. It makes it harder, uh, I think, to sometimes understand the motive. Are they just going because it's convenient or are they really mad sometimes? And when we lose the, the killer in the process, we don't know. And I'll tell you, for example, there was a terrible shooting in Milwaukee in my old territory that occurred at a a Sikh temple a short distance from the shooter's home. So that shooter killed seven people, injured three. And that was before the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, That's why I remember it. It was just a few months before, I think. But in this case, that particular shooter was a white supremacist. But again, he died at the scene. He was a longstanding, firm believer in white supremacy. So very different than this young man. But he died at the scene. And so even at that shooting at that uh, temple, the motivation was never confirmed. Do you think because the research is still ongoing, that we're going Mm -hmm. to build a picture of the why eventually? Do you think 
there's so many of these cases and they are now being researched where they weren't that maybe eventually we will build up a profile like perhaps they have for serial killers? I don't think so. I know. I'm sorry to say that. I think the why is very difficult to go ahead and uh, explain in a thorough way because the crimes are so different and there's so many factors where it occurs, who does the killing, who the victims are. There can be domestic situations, workplace situations. I actually just had a long conversation yesterday with one of my dear friends, Dewey Cornell. He's a brilliant person who works at the University of Virginia in threat assessments. And we were just talking about how so often we want to narrow the pool down so that we can come up with profiles. And that's not really helpful to actually trying to solve the crimes. So I don't think we're going to get a profile. That's really interesting. I find that fascinating. So let's talk about those behaviors of concerns now. What sticks out to you in his background in particular? We really have a shooting that is an, an example of no system in place for somebody once they leave high school. Some high schools have threat assessment teams. You have teachers and principals and school resource officers and counselors who see people all the time. But here is somebody who is primarily not working. We don't have any systems that are for young adults when we know that the age of uh, people commit these targeted violence is in their mid thirties, we don't have a system in place here, at least in the United States that helps people in their twenties and thirties. And when they graduate from high school, they drop off the grid in terms of somebody who's keeping an eye out for them. So I think that's a bad thing, right? That's definitely a bad thing. And we see the mom was trying to follow the rules. She called the police and there was a red flag laws and stuff, but there's so many holes in these safety nets. And so we've got to shore up our safety nets. It does feel like there's massive gaps in the safety nets. He was put under the involuntary mental hold. That is supposed to be reported and it wasn't. Like you say, there needs to be a safety net that catches those kids. We definitely have things. The National Incident Criminal Background Check System is what it's called. That's why we call it NICS because National Instant Criminal Background Check System is a lot of words that nobody can say. So we call it NICS for short. That system does allow law enforcement to document when someone has certain mental health challenges, and that would have prevented them from being able to potentially get the gun. It's hard to say. But the problem there again is that it's voluntary. It's voluntary. That's right. And again, 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the country, federal, state, local, tribal. So a lot of law enforcement limited resources to go ahead and make those kinds of reporting. Yeah. (laughs) To me, that's what needs to be fixed immediately. But you're right. It's a voluntary system, but it takes time and it's not a gray area. This guy was on a court-ordered mental health hold. You just report it. It's easy for me to say when you're the law enforcement agency and you don't have the resources. But I think, well, this is not the first time we're going to see this problem. Let me just tell you that. No. So Um, let's go back to those behaviors of concern then. Let's pull out a few more of those. I'll tell you the FBI said probably more than any other instance that we've talked about this season, I think the FBI's behavioral team looked at this guy's digital footprint and they said, this guy, his actions were, they said, quote, an act of suicidal murder. And that's something that you don't hear too often, an act of suicidal murder. The FBI found no evidence of bias, no workplace grievance. In fact, no real connection to anybody at that office. This was somebody who wanted to commit suicide. But as the FBI said, he wanted to demonstrate his masculinity and capabilities while he took people down. So this is key for me. You listen to that language. And I tell you that because think about how you could support those people around you who might be struggling, even unreasonably, right? You may think that they're wrong, but if they feel a need to demonstrate 
their masculinity and capabilities, that's a volatile description. Totally. What screwed up dictionary he's using, if demonstrating masculinity and capabilities, it translated into taking defenseless, unsuspecting people's lives. You're right. But they're not thinking clearly and they're having their Mm. own trajectory towards violence. And they see this as their world is crumbling. And in this case, they're going to take somebody with them. Mm. And he clearly struggled uh, for a long time. And it just didn't start the day he walked in and bought that first gun. I always feel more informed when we've had these conversations. But I have to be honest, today I'm feeling particularly frustrated in this situation. What can people do at ground level to ensure that these fire breaks like the red flag laws are enforced in their community, in their state, in their country? This particular case started out as, oh, this is a shooting at a a workplace. Now, I hope it's clear that it's not really about a shooting at a workplace. It's really about a young man who was troubled from a young age And there were efforts to try to help him. But then a number of people became his victims and whole communities were affected because of the circumstances. What can you do? I think you need to be aware of the laws that are there that are designed to help and protect people. If you have a 20-year-old who's your friend or who's a spouse, and they're on an involuntary mental health hold, which may seem unusual, but it isn't. Police often come to the scene when things are bad. Ask the police, have they reported it to the NICS system? If you're at the hospital and you're calling to check on, on the welfare of your family member, ask if the healthcare people have reported to the police and ask the police to report it. Any department can get it into the system, federal, state, local. Entries should be made into the NICS system, not only for adjudicated mental health, there's other reasons why it can go in there. Dishonorable discharge from the military, domestic protection orders, restraining orders, illegal aliens, uh, substance abuse convictions. Uh, There's a whole host of reasons why people shouldn't be uh, allowed to purchase a gun. But it's kind of garbage in, garbage out without the right information. So I'm not advocating for random reporting because I hear people say, I don't think just because I have a problem, I should be forever banned. No, there are very specific circumstances. You have to feel comfortable enough to know what your laws are. You're protecting somebody who's going to commit suicide. What are the hard lessons that we learned from the FedEx shooting? I hate to even say this, but this was April of 2021, right? I pulled the Twitter posts from the important people, the politicians, the policymakers, and the language they use about what happens afterwards is the same language that we heard 20 years ago after Columbine. Everybody's heartbroken and everybody's sad and everybody's sickened and sending their prayers. And this was a senseless killing and this is tragic and it's horrific. And I guess it goes without saying that the hard lesson here is that if we're going to stop the killing, we're going to have to do it ourselves. We're just going to have to do it ourselves. We have to monitor our own peers and family for suicidal ideations. We have to get a little bit into each other's business to make sure they're okay. People don't stroll down this path because they want to. Very rarely do we have somebody whose whole goal in life is to do this. Nobody's a five-year-old and says, when I grow up, I want to be a mass shooter. The worst of these shootings are planned out for months and months, sometimes years. People can notice behaviors of concern if they truly pay attention to those around them. And that is it's probably the most impactful thing that you can do. Tell us about those moments of incredible bravery or humanity that we saw at the FedEx shooting. 
So this was, as they often are, very quick shooting. And the killer had two high-powered weapons with him. And there really wasn't any opportunity, I think, to stop the killing at that moment. But I would vote for humanity here, actually. And I'll I'll tell you why, because that sounds like a funny answer. But I I was in the Milwaukee FBI office as the terrorism supervisor after the 9-11 terrorist attacks here on 2001. As part of my job, I work closely with this Sikh community. Today's practicing Sikhs are really peace-loving and gentle people. And after 9-11, as we know around the world, but particularly here in the United States, they were often attacked by really ignorant bigots who were unaware that somebody who wears a turban, who's Sikh practicing his religion, is a completely different religion than the Muslim man that they sought to unfairly attack for the attacks. So all over this country, we saw that the Sikh community targeted uh, their store windows broken, their car tires slashed. So they put up with a lot then. And as I mentioned, in 2012, the Milwaukee community was rocked with its own tragedy. The worst situation that occurred in a um, religious facility, not that I'm a big fan of using worst. I think there were six uh, killed, seven wounded in a similar attack uh, where somebody uh, arrived there and started shooting. The four who died in Indy were in their 50s and 60s. Some were grandparents. The oldest one was 68. He had started working there a week before. And I think that's the humanity part of it to go. These aren't numbers and names. These are people, a 68-year-old man who decided to work to help his family. In fact, one of the report said 90% of the people that worked at this facility were, were from the Sikh community. Some who died really had family members who also worked there. Yet, I think what was very amazing is they found a way, as they did in Milwaukee, to move on and never continue to lash out to the rest of the Indianapolis community. And I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I know their religious tenets are focused on devotion to the creator and truthful living and service to humanity. And I think that's why humanity is my winner here, because they really gave their last full measure for humanity. Have you got a final thought that you'd like to leave us with today? Yeah, I guess I would just say look past categories of domestic violence, workplace violence, suicide prevention. His employment was a a blip. This essentially was an angry and troubled person who was just looking for a way to kill himself or be killed in a confrontation. And so for security people, push your perimeters outside those four walls. For employees, create your own crisis communications plan. Look for those behaviors of concern. They're there. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. 
All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. One of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.